It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Adam Spiegel, Chief Executive Officer of North Star Anesthesia. Adam oversees all aspects of growing North Star's care platform and leads the company in its commitment to delivering solutions for the hospitals and surgery centers North Star serves. He brings more than 20 years of business development and operations experience within the healthcare industry. And prior to joining North Star, he served as Executive Vice President of Provider Growth at Optum, a subsidiary of United Health Group. Before Optum, Adam spent more than 15 years at the advisory board company, where he served in several different capacities, primarily focusing on general management, new product launches, and go-to-market strategies. He successfully integrated the two companies' sales and renewal organizations, managed all sales and renewals at Optum Products. Adam earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Yale University and his Master's in Business Administration from the Wharton School of Business. Adam Spiegel, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me, Brent. Uh, great to have you here. And what what part of the world do we find you in today? I'm in Washington, D.C. D.C. All right. Getting a little cooler there, I imagine, these days as you get closer into the winter. Absolutely. <laughs> That's welcome, I'm sure, after those muggy summers. Well, we always like to kick things off, Adam, and understand a little bit about our CEO's early years. So tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so, uh, a little bit warmer than here in DC mm. and, uh, two brothers, uh, I was the middle of three, um, both parents were in healthcare. Uh, my father, uh, started off as a radiologist, uh, and, uh, went back to school after raising three boys and decided to become a child psychiatrist. Uh, and my mother was a nurse practitioner and, uh, ended up doing uh, family therapy over time. Wow. So healthcare has been in your family from the very beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> I can see how that influenced some of those uh, decisions you made early on. And we'll get to those in a minute. Um, tell us about some of the things that you remember, you know, uh, maybe, you know, inspirational things from mom and dad, particularly with regards to the career that they chose and you eventually did as well. Yeah, I think both uh, parents were uh, very hard workers. So I think it was, you know, while family life was important, you know, it was very important to be successful. And they saw their professional success is important to their personal success. Um, they always felt that they, you know, giving back to the community and to society, part of that is about, you know, working hard and uh, working in something that is meaningful to them. Um, so I think that was important and something I took away. 
you know, my father, uh, while uh, in the medical profession, um, you know, liked uh, business. Uh, so, you know, taught me how to look for look at stocks, uh, you know, sort of thought about finances uh, in a much more macro way, ran his practice. Um, so I got a little bit of the, you know, practice management bug from him. Um, and, you know, my mother was um, always working. Um, so she was, you know, a shift nurse. Then she started her own practice, um, very entrepreneurial. And, you know, I think that that was uh, seeing both parents be working, I think, was important for me in terms of thinking about, you know, the workforce that we have now. Um, that's much more common, but that's something I grew up in. So this wasn't really a mental adjustment I had to make. And, you know, thinking about it, raising three kids on her own and working full time uh, was challenging for my mother. And as I think about, you know, my teams and the things that they go through, it's given me um, a fair amount of understanding of what it's like to, you know, be the provider um, as a full time mom um, and uh, how challenging that can be. So I think that also had a big impact in, you know, how I think about the workforce as well. Good foundations there. Yeah. Any other influencers or those that inspired you during those younger years, coaches, teachers, others? You know, I had um, my grandfather, uh, my mother's father, uh, was, um, you know, ran his own business. And I think he was someone who was a big influence for me. Uh, he, I was an early riser, as was he. Um, so whenever they would come to visit, um, they'd spend a couple weeks with us, uh, you know, every six months or so. Um, he spent a lot of time kind of talking about work with me, even as a, you know, eight or nine-year-old. And I think that, you know, gave me a very interesting perspective on, uh, life and you know he treated me like an adult back then and uh, sort of got me very interested in sort of economics and sort of the way that businesses are run um, and that was something that you know definitely had a big impact on me as well. Good mentoring there, love that. Were you a good student in school, Adam? Uh, I was. Um, you know, I always again sort of achievement oriented was important, um, and uh, my parents definitely pushed school as part of that. So. Uh, was always very um, interested in um, school and kind of, I always had a, you know, innate uh, curiosity. So I like to learn new things. Um, it was less about grades and more about, you know, exploring things. And uh, I had, you know, Arizona is not known for its uh, fantastic public schools. Um, and I actually went to a private high school. And that really got me interested much more so in sort of academics and learning than I um, had previously done. And that's, uh, you know, enabled me to kind of continue down the academic career. What about other activities, sports, music, theater, other sports, things that you got involved with during secondary school? Yeah, so I, uh, I actually did a fair amount of uh, acting when I was a kid. Um, so that was something that I sort of did on the side and really enjoyed. And I think that's, you know, my interest in public speaking kind of came from that. So always very comfortable getting in front of large groups. And honestly, that comes from, you know, being in sixth grade and having to sort of be the lead in a play. I think that that that's probably the prime time of being concerned about how you're appearing in front of large audiences. So if you can do it when you're, you know, getting into middle school and in front of all your middle school colleagues, I think you can do it as an adult. So that was definitely important for me. Um, athletics was a huge part of my high school. Um, and I think that's really where a lot of sort of leadership um, came into play. Uh, you know, I wasn't always the best player on the team, but I was often given captain's 
responsibilities. And, you know, in high school, when you're dealing with sometimes kids who are older than you, that you're supposed to be sort of telling them what to do, you know, new kids who don't quite understand what's going on as the freshmen and sophomores uh, join the team, it can be challenging for a high school kid. And I think um, a lot of the lessons I learned, you know, on the athletic field about leadership, about sportsmanship, about, you know, encouragement, um, and sort of getting a team to achieve a broader goal um, really helped me later in life. Wonderful leadership foundations there too. Awesome. What about entrepreneurial things with, you know, granddad and mom and dad kind of all being in business? Did you pursue some of those, you know, have the ubiquitous paper route or other things that you did as a kid? You know, I, I like to work. Um, so I think I, you know, where I went was more around, hey, how do I get a job as soon as I can um, with a steady paycheck? So um, rather than a, you know, entrepreneurial activity, I was a, a bag boy at Safeway. So, um, you know, I, as I say, that's, uh, it's a great, you know, these starting jobs when you're really, you know, working for, you know, bigger companies. For me, it, it taught me very early on that, you know, you need to temper your expectations of your boss. Um, mm. It's great to have a fantastic boss, but sometimes you don't. And you gotta, you know, as you can imagine, you know, the, uh, the head bag boy um, at Safeway wasn't necessarily the, you know, my inspiration. Um, <laughs> somebody who I was going to learn a tremendous amount about life from. Um, and I didn't, but, you know, I had to figure out how to navigate uh, with somebody who's very different than me, um, different upbringing, um, different outlook on life, different work ethic, obviously. And, you know, still make sure that I was ticking all the boxes and, you know, doing my job well. And, you know, as you go through life, you're not always going to have the, you know, manager of your dreams. And I think uh, that was, you know, those early experiences. I was a ballet you know, had to report to the head valet. Um, when I got into the working world, you know, people would complain about their bosses and I was like, well, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> um, and I think that actually really helped me uh, in terms of, you know, having a, a little bit of perspective on, you know, what, what should I be getting from uh, my leader? Um, and that, you know, has helped me uh, navigate some, you know, challenging uh, times in the more professional world. Was it pretty clear you'd go to college growing up? I Yes, it wasn't really a choice. So that was something sort of my parents, um, that was that was sort of their expectation. Uh, you know, my grandmothers both uh, went to college, which was relatively wow. unusual. Um, and uh, so definitely academics were in the family. So you chose to go to Yale. Uh, big, sw big switch, big change, uh, both geographically, as I'm sure, as well as culturally. Um, was that your top choice? It was. Um, and, you know, you, you look back on these decisions and sometimes you, you realize how little thought you put into some of these things. Um, you know, I went and I explored a bunch of schools and, of course, I visited Yale in, you know, May, um, which is it's absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful time in Connecticut. Exactly. <laughs> and it never looks like that when you're actually in school, <laughs> no. um, ever. Um, and then, you know, I had a great uh, student guide who was funny and, you know, charming and, you know, really gave a good impression. And, you know, my experience with some of the other schools, just they were either different times of year. So it was not as nice or the, the guide wasn't, I didn't click as, as much with. So, you know, sort of was like, that's where I wanted to go um, and applied early and got in. And, you know, when you sort of get in, it sort of uh, it diminishes your desire to keep exploring other options. So for me, um, I loved Yale when I walked in um, the first time I saw it and I really saw it as a home. Now, in retrospect, uh, you know, kid from Phoenix, Arizona going to, 
you know, overcast, never sunny, cold Connecticut uh, may, may not have been the best choice. Certainly my freshman year, I may have been thinking once or twice about uh, my decision process, but um, it turned out to be a great experience and, you know, lifelong friends that I still have there. And, uh, you know, I do think uh, really helped me continue um, to love learning. And I think that's something that uh, Yale does a great job of. I think the professors are highly engaged motivational and, um, you know, something that while a lot of the topics and the classes I took there uh, have absolutely no applicability to what I do now, um, it really that sort of uh, pushing um, your curiosity was something that they continued to peak for me. So uh, you chose to, you chose to study political science. I believe that's where you got your BA. And, you know, what was the thinking around that? Did you, did you think that maybe going into politics might be something you want to do? Did you always kind of have your eye on business? Tell us about kind of the thought process behind your major choice. Yeah. I mean, one was, it was the classes I liked. So part of it was honestly, you know, I had really enjoyed my economics classes and my political science classes. And, you know, as you start to, I wish I would say that this was, you know, a really thoughtful plot, but at the end of the day, I take, I love those classes. So I took more of them and, you know, that was sort of, as I started to build, I did think that I may want to get into politics and I was cured of that. Uh, by spending a summer in D.C. working um, uh, for a political consultant. <laughs> um, and really, you know, you kind of see the the not-so-fun side of politics, uh, which is, you know, the pollsters and the, you know, consultants and how things work. So um, as a profession, that definitely sort of turned me off. But again, I think, you know, a lot of the things about um, leading, about doing things that you care about, about making kind of a difference in whatever field you're in, I think that a lot of the political science uh, drives those sort of characteristics. So I think that's what what, uh, drew me to it. What was the first job you took out of college? So I worked for a company called the Advisory Board. um, And that was, um, it's it's sort of like a uh, consulting company for hospitals. So you do research for um, hospital C-suites, so CEOs, CFOs, COOs, about the things that keep them up at night. So what are the what are the biggest pressing issues? And coming out of school, you know, they would have uh, what they called research associates. So my job was to kind of go out, um, find, you know, they'd say, hey, I've got a problem um, and, uh, you know, I want to figure out what is the, uh, what is the, let's say, you know, I want to create a hospital within a hospital, um, but I don't know what to do. And you'd go out and you'd find other facilities that had done that, interview mm. them and kind of write it up and uh, send it along. And that was, uh, um, it was a great first job because it was sort of an extension of school. Um, and I started to learn a ton about healthcare and what you know, the healthcare system does, what hosp- what executives really cared about day to day. And I think it was a fantastic foundation for uh, my future career. And it sounded like it probably gave you a very good overview of the whole healthcare industry. Exactly. And I think, you know, that it was that question, sort of what keeps you up at night is a very interesting question because it's different than what are your priorities for the year? It's different than you know, what are the things that are impacting your bottom line? It really is the, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night with cold sweats, what is it going to be about? And when you hear sort of leaders talking about that when, you know, your first job, um, it really got a very quick understanding of what the real challenges are with the healthcare system. 
you know, you spent about 14, 15 years there. Uh, what kind of kept you interested, uh, you know, kind of stay with the same company for so long? A little unusual these days when people tend to jump around a lot after, you know, the first couple of jobs. No, 100%. And if you'd asked me going in, would I stay at the same company for a long period of time, I would have thought you were crazy because, you know, I'm an ambitious dude and, you know, always thought that I'd be bouncing around to lots of different things. And, you know, what I found was um, it was, you know, two things. It was the culture and the people. Um, they, it was this sort of, it made you feel like you were still in academia and um, they had a couple of values that they really cared about um, that really infused in everybody that worked there. Um, one of the biggest ones was this concept of running to criticism and the idea that, you know, you should always be improving. And what I found was in every role that I was in, I was constantly getting feedback from my peers, from my subordinates, from my superiors, and it made me better. Um, and that was something that you just don't always find. And for me, um, was incredibly valuable uh, in terms of, uh, you know, my career, which was, I was constantly learning and I was constantly learning, not just about the industry, but about myself. You know, what are the things I do well? What are the things I do poorly? And uh, very, you know, clear and honest with that feedback. And I think that that's, that sort of kept me driving and feeling like, hey, I'm not stalling out. I'm sort of constantly on the steep end of the learning curve. Um, they had a real fun uh, foundation about meritocracy was the other piece, which was, mm. you know, you can keep getting promoted. So there wasn't, it wasn't about your degree or your, you know, experience. It was about, Hey, is this somebody who's consistently, um, performing at a high level? And if so, we're going to give them more stuff. And that was kind of the other piece, which every time I started to feel like I was sort of flattening out on that learning curve, I got promoted or I got put into a different role entirely. Um, and that was super exciting for me. Um, so, you know, culturally that was important. And then the second piece was the people I worked with. Um, I got to work with incredibly smart people, incredibly talented in ways that I could never, you know, hope to be um, in a lot of different areas. And uh, there were also fun people to work with. So, you know, what I found was to my surprise, uh, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but, you know, how much uh, importance is around the people you work with. Um, if you are surrounded by people who you like, who you enjoy, um, work is so much better. Um, and it's a place that, you know, hey, the company might be doing poorly, you might be going through a tough stretch from a business perspective, but if you're with people you like to work with, um, it's fine. You can get through it, you get through the low times, and then the high times are great. Um, and when you're working with people who you don't enjoy as much, um, it's very different. Uh, it's a very different story. And I think that for me was the reason why I stayed as long as I did. Adam, were you given uh, leadership responsibilities early on, advisory board? I was. So, um, you know, I'd probably worked there about a year uh, when I got into my first management position. Great. And what were some of the lessons that you learned or maybe challenges that you had during those first couple of years? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing for me was learning that um, other people learn differently than I do. So, you know, the example of this was and want to be managed differently. Um, so in my first managerial job, it was, again, this research uh, position. And what I would do is you'd kind of get a research project, you do the research, you'd write up the paper, you'd hand it into your manager, and they would basically, it's like an editor, they would edit the paper and give it back to you. And they tell you, here are the things you did well, and here are the things you did poorly. And we were on a productivity system. So you had to, you know, the more projects that you put out, the better you did. 
And so it used to drive me crazy because I'd go in and I'd sit with my manager and they'd spend a whole bunch of time telling me all the great things about my project. And then they'd get to the part where they give me my edits. And, you know, I'm just like, just tell me what I did wrong so I can fix it, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't need to hear all the fluff. Just tell me what I did. So when I became a manager, of course, I didn't do the positive stuff. I just gave everybody their edits um, and said, hey, look, here's what you did wrong and go fix it. And people started crying in my office. Mm. <laughs> it was surprising to me. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually my manager came in and said, hey, you know, we, we need to talk about this. Um, uh people don't want to work for you. Um, you know, you're overly harsh, you're not supportive, yada, yada. And, you know, it really struck at that point. One is that obviously you need to be supportive as a boss, but you know, that I'm not managing myself, I'm managing other people right. and investing in the way they like to learn the way that they like to be managed is really important. And getting that lesson, you know, a year out of undergrad, uh, was huge for me because at that point in my career, I then started to ask, hey, how do you like to be managed? You know, what are the things that matter to you? What are you trying to do? What do you want to achieve in your role? And those are questions I still ask today. But mm -hmm. I find that a lot of managers who get into that role later in life, those are blind spots. And I think it was a, it was a great opportunity for me to sort of open my eyes very early um, where I could learn and, and adjust the way that I did things. So um, very grateful for that early mistake uh, and the correction that happened. Yeah, great, great early lesson. And it sounds like you had a great manager too that was able to point that out to you and get you back on track. Absolutely. Now you went and got your MBA at Wharton while you're at the advisory board. Tell us a little bit about that thinking because a lot of times that's a pivot for some people, right? You know, they'll get their MBA and then go into a new career. So, you know, walk us through kind of your thinking of going there and then obviously staying at advisory board afterwards. Yeah, that was my intention. And I think, yeah. you know, there's, there's, um, it, it is interesting. And I've, I've heard this from, um, I remember when I first went to Yale, you know, my college uh, counselor said, you know, um, there's kind of two types of people in situations you go in. People go into Yale and they say, gosh, I'm not smart enough. I'm, you know, never going to be successful. And they get there and they realize, hey, I'm just as smart as everybody else. Uh, and there are other people who go in and say, hey, you know, I'm smart. I'm brilliant. They get there and they, they're, they're, it's a, it's a humbling experience. Um, I was in the latter camp. So, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, I had done well in almost anything I did. And I got to Yale and I was like, wow, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> and uh, just surrounded by brilliant people in a lot of different ways. And I think it was a bit of a, for me, a, you know, smack in the face of, hey, like, you know, a uh, little bit of humility uh, that you need to learn about yourself, which was obviously helpful for me. I had sort of the opposite experience at business school, which was, um, you know, I'd worked for a relatively unknown company, the advisory board. I was in healthcare. Um, I'd been doing that for five years. I wasn't an incredible entrepreneur. I wasn't working at McKinsey. I wasn't working at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I was coming to Wharton and, you know, it was sort of my opportunity to kind of rub elbows with the big boys and, you know, see what it's like to, you know, work at one of these, you know, big business schools and interact with other, these other people. And, you know, I had the opposite, um, experiences I did with undergrad, which was, wow, like, you know, I'm just as good as all these other people. And in fact, you know, the people I worked with at the advisory board were just as smart and in some ways, you know, um, a lot more pleasant to work with. Hmm. And I thought that when I was going to go there, I needed to kind of go to business school to take the next step. So to be able to take on a big business and to be able to, you know, work at a 
big consulting firm or investment banking firm to get to that next level. And it's sort of this, you know, next rung in the ladder to get me to some future place that's going to, you know, enable me to be a CEO or something like that one day. And what I learned is I didn't need to go to business school. Mm. Um, It was a very expensive lesson. (laughs) Um, And I will say I enjoyed my time there. And, you know, Warren is a great school. And again, you know, for me, from an intellectual perspective, it was great. I, I, I learned a ton. Um, it was stimulating, but in terms of did it help me in my path to bigger leadership roles, I needed to go there to learn that actually I didn't need to go to business school, which was um, if I had just sort of had a little bit more confidence in myself um, and, you know, continue to follow my path, I could get there on my own. I didn't need business school to help me get there. You eventually made the decision to leave the advisory board, though, and I think you had one other job before you went on to, to Northstar. Tell us a little bit about that process, particularly after having been there for so long. Yeah, and again, this gets back to sort of culture and people. Um, we were acquired, so I think that that is always a challenging um uh, moment and we right. had acquired companies previously at the advisory board and I had been working on the integration side and we you know we probably acquired seven eight companies that I was involved with and I'd always think like boy why are, why are people so you know challenged by this why is it so hard to retain talent when this when these changes happen and it, it really is you know when you're used to one culture and you're introduced suddenly to a new culture that's difficult um, and there's oftentimes reasons why people pick the company they're in, and a lot of that has to do with culture. So, you know, what I found was that um, you definitely were in this, uh, you know, we were in a situation when the situation was reversed, where we were being acquired, where, you know, Optum, um, big healthcare company, uh, part of United, which is a Fortune 3 company, you know, it's just they had a very different culture than the advisory board. And um, I was, I tried to embrace it. I sort of worked with it. Um, and I happened to be taking on a role with an Optum where they wanted me to run growth for their um, hospital-based business and physician practice business. And uh, I ended up interacting with almost none of the people who I had previously worked with Hmm. at the advisory board. And it was a great experience. Um, You know, I definitely enjoyed my time there. In some ways, it got me deeper on the physician practice area, which I eventually moved into from a North Star perspective. But um, it was I knew that it wasn't a place that I was going to be happy long term. And maybe had I had a couple more experiences before I went to Optum, or if I had chosen to go to Optum, it would have been different. But sometimes when these cultures are forced upon you, um, it's a tough it's tough to sort of stay. So were you recruited over to the North Star? Was there you know connections from the advisory board there? How did you kind of make that transition? Yeah, and you know I had looked at a, a few different uh, opportunities uh, that came up. Um, and, you know, it was, and again, this gets back to sort of, you know, what intrinsically motivates you. And, you know, a lot of um, pitches I'd gotten were private equity owned businesses, you know, relatively small, you know, call it, you know, 75 to, you know, 200 million in revenue kind of businesses in healthcare. And, uh, you know, they pitched, hey, you know, we're going to flip this company in two to three years. We need a CEO to come in and sort of scale it, and then you'll make a ton of money. And that was kind of the pitch. It was, you know, it was sometimes it was a $75 million company, sometimes it was a $200 million company, but it was always about you're going to make a ton of money it was the kind of, that's the thing that you're going to do. And I just couldn't get excited about that. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, I got a um, call from uh, Jeff Zients, who uh, he's now uh, uh, President Biden's chief of staff. But at the time, he was the CEO of Cranemere, which is a long-term capital company. And Jeff called me, and he was the CEO of the advisory board that I had worked pretty closely with before business school. So it was a mentor of mine. Um, asked me what I was doing and said, hey, you know, um, I think I might have an opportunity for you. Hmm. And we went out to breakfast and he told me about North Star Anesthesia. And, you know, his pitch was, um, this is a space, the practice management uh, business, where you've got a disconnect between the owners of a lot of these businesses, which are public companies or private equity firms that have very short time horizons, and the business itself, which is, you know, anesthesiologists, hospitals, they don't ever want to not work together. <laughs> um, so they'd be happy if, you know, they just sort of stayed at the same place and were, you know, perfectly fine doing that. And when you've got a company with a two to three year, three to five year time horizon and a employee base and a client that has a 10 to 20 year time horizon, um, that's a disconnect. And this is an opportunity to really rethink the way that care is delivered. Um, and an actual capital structure that supports it. And that's what, you know, he sort of pitched to me. And that was exciting. Um, and then it was all about the business. It was all about the, you know, what needs to change, you know, what are the competitive dynamics? And uh, uh, that was exciting to me. So obviously working with someone who I'd worked with before, that was a big part of it. Um, it was, you know, probably a bigger step than I would have naturally stepped into had I taken a job from somebody who I didn't have a connection with. Um, but it was that, you know, hey, there's a higher purpose here. There's a, it, it's a, it was, the cell was about the space and the sort of, this is what, you, this could be your next advisory board um, was what really appealed to me. And this has been a roll up, hasn't it, Adam? Did it, did it start that way or continued that way? Yeah, it's a little bit different in that, um, you know, most roll-ups really focus on the top end of the market. So what they do is they look for the best practices that are happening in a given market, uh, buy those practices, and then sort of those apex practices with great rates, um, with payers, and then, you know, they know how to run the practice. So, you know, as a management company, you kind of let the practice run itself. And then what you're doing is you're finding other practices to add on to it to create scale. Um North Star actually is the opposite, which is they focus on the bottom of the market. So the vast majority of its growth is organic, um, and it's when the current group is not working out. And maybe it's that they don't have any business savvy, maybe it's a quality issue, maybe it's just a really hard place to recruit um, clinicians to. And as a result, the hospitals worry that they can't do their surgical business effectively. That's where North Star really specializes. So that was appealing to me as well, because it wasn't just about the financials, which is, you know, find the right practices, put them together and let them run. This was much more of a business where you have to roll up your sleeves because nobody's hiring you because everything's going well. Right. They're hiring you because there's a problem and you've got to fix it. So to me, again, it's sort of like, hey, for every one of these new opportunities, it's an opportunity for us to improve care. And that was something that we were, you know, obviously it was very exciting to me. Awesome. And you've been there about five years. How would you say your leadership styles evolved since you've uh, entered the corner office? You know, I think for me, the I had managed a, you know, relatively large scale team previously. Um but stepping into the CEO role, I was really, you know, 
worried, to be honest, about how much of my role would be, you know, how do you focus so much on strategy? And it's going to be much more about big picture items and it's going to be about um, the finances and, you know, getting deep in accounting. And uh, the reality is it's not that different. So what I'd say is I spend 95% of my time on people issues. And that Mm -hmm. was surprising to me. Um, But um, it's something that I like to do. And I think that's been the, you know, it's an area that I've definitely continued to grow in. Um, I think it is, you know, as you move into more and more senior roles, in a weird way, um, enabling your team becomes more and more important. So I'd say that the thing that I've had to learn more and more is that it's hard for me to personally um, direct things. So to get things done, um, I'm almost always operating through people. And that is a different skill set and exercises different muscles. And I think it's really important to make sure you've got the right team um, and that you are supporting them. And in a weird way, you know, that's kind of, as I see my job now, is that less about, hey, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And it's more about how do I enable my team to be successful? And if I do that, then the company seems to do pretty well. You talked earlier about the importance of culture, particularly at the advisory board. What would you say is unusual or unique about North Star's uh, culture? Uh, you know, it's it. What I would say is uh, there is actually something that we, I picked up from Optum, uh, which was a phrase: "Assume positive intent." Hmm. And um, that's important in any relationship. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, especially especially in the home front. But no um, uh, but I will say it's it, it is particularly important in healthcare, and I think in a world where it always feels like there is a lot of fingers being pointed, especially now, um, assuming positive intent of your clients, assuming positive intent of your coworkers, um, that is a really, really important value to drive. And I think that that is one of the things that I've really tried to push on our teams. And it is flowing through. And I think when you hear feedback on Northstar about much more of a team-based approach, being supportive, um, thinking about the whole group, I think when you hear conversations with our clients, the hospitals and health systems or the surgeons, um, they talk about that we're very collaborative with them. I think a lot of that comes back to assuming positive intent. And somebody can send an email that you can read into um, and spiral down. But if you sort of step back and say, hey, let's assume that they meant this positively, um, it completely changes the way that you approach that problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that um, it's a relatively simple thing, but it really drives a lot of what I'd argue is our differentiation in the market is that we're not about pointing fingers. We're about sort of digging in, solving problems. And I think that comes from, you know, not spiraling out when you hear something that, you know, you may take the wrong way. Yeah. Focus on getting the job done. Love that. What do you look for, Adam, when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire or, or the companies that you're purchasing, you know, bringing into the group? You know, it really, a lot of this, again, is what I learned at the advisory board. I look much more at track record. Um, so, you know, who are people that I trust that uh, speak highly of this person or that they have been successful in the things that they've done in the past. So, you know, unlike the, you know, person who looks at the, you know, Yale and Wharton resume, Hmm. um, what I'm looking for is, hey, does, do I know somebody who knows somebody um, uh, and can speak very highly of them and talk about how they made progression? When I'm looking at an employee for promotion, again, it's less about their background. It's more, 
have they in you know their existing roles continue to be successful in all the challenges that they've met and when that's the case you know i want to give them more responsibility um and it's important um when you're doing that to also give space to fail and i think that's something where um it's hard because i think the you know you want to push your team you want to give them more um they're not always going to be able to step up to that immediately and um making them feel comfortable trying and failing i think is important because if you you know sort of set that bar too high um and they don't reach it it's a great way to lose talent um and i think that's something that you know we've spent a lot of time trying to instill is this you know comfort with failure as you've been growing, are you still involved in quite a few of the interviewing process with new hires? Uh, I am. Um, certainly, you know, again, that gets to the HR nature of what I do. Um, we're still a pretty, while we're, you know, over a billion dollars in revenue as a company, we're still a relatively small corporate office. So it does enable me to get to know, you know, uh, pretty it gets to know people pretty deep in the organization. So I do like to be involved in the interview process. Um, again, less the actual, you know, always the, hey, 15, 20 minutes. That's usually, I'm usually selling at that point. It's more about, you know, do I know somebody through my connections? Who have we talked to has worked with this person before? Um, so that, you know, you've got a little bit of a third party reference that um, you trust. I, I find when that's the case, uh, you those hires tend to be much more successful than somebody who aced the interview, um, but that you've got no connectivity to. Yeah. Do you have a favorite interview question you like to ask, particularly after someone's been screened, say, by four or five other people within the organization, you know, by the time they get to you? Yeah, my, my question is, uh, tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, you know, uh, the getting through adversity is important because, you know, it hits everybody. And, um, you know, good experiences, bad experiences, everybody has them. You know, I think what really differentiates is the people who actually can learn from those experiences um, about themselves. And I think that is one of the things I'm looking for. It's not so much, here's a great story about failure and what I did differently. It's really a, is there any insight into um, themselves that they're taking away from that experience and that, you know, knowing themselves well, um, that tends to create great leaders. We we're now living kind of in a post COVID world. And I know we didn't get into it, but a lot of impact on your organization during that period. And you, you managed through that and are coming out the other side. As you look ahead, what would you say are some of the biggest changes that you've made in order to really kind of a, prepare you for what may be coming next, but more importantly, the learnings that came out of that, you know, very tough couple of years that the healthcare industry went through. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's uh, obviously providing resources for people during challenging times. Um, you know, you find it, COVID obviously was the extreme version of it, but, you know, things that are happening in the world can, uh, you know, be tough on the teams, um, you know, both locally and internationally. Um, so I think just making sure that you've got lots of resources for people are important. I think a big part of that is regionalization. So, you know, we had kind of had a corporate office, um, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, you're supporting a geographically diverse group and you want scale and things like that. But I, I think it is important for us to be local with the teams whenever we can. So we've, 
um, been really opting for much more of a regional model when it comes to support services like HR, um, business partners like our operations teams so that we can be close to our clinicians, not just in terms of, you know, phone calls and emails, but physically actually be able to get there because it is weird in the, you know, in the corporate world, people are working from home. You can't do that when you're in healthcare and you're a clinician, you've got to be at the hospital. So we've got a team that, you know, 90% of our team members are actually physically there every day that they're working. And our corporate teams, having them in a location where they can go sort of meet them there, I think is really important for us. So that's something that we've really adjusted to over the last couple of years. Adam, you've been very generous with your time, but we always have one last uh, question for all our CEO guests. And that's what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that maybe has, you know, is mid-career and has their eyes on the corner office someday? You know, for me, I think it's all about um, find people that you enjoy working with. Um, and that is going to make you much more successful. Um, you know, I find that the, if I look at all the important sort of steps I've taken in my career, it's been because of a relationship that I had with somebody else and one that I had created at work. And, you know, those are the people that you trust when you're taking on a new job, you know, not going in blindly, but having somebody who's been there or knows somebody who's there. Um, really helps with that. So I think for me, um, rather than run at the best title or the most challenging role, it's find an environment where you like the people you're working with, um, because I think that's going to help you more than anything else. And if you look around and you say, boy, these are miserable people to work with, you know, <laughs> you're not in find the right place. Else. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Wise counsel, Adam. Adam Spiegel, Chief Executive Officer at North Star Anesthesia. Thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks for having me, Brand. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.